The story of how early humans migrated to North America just got a little bit more complicated and interesting. You probably remember the story pretty well. Early humans living in what is now Siberia crossed the Bering Strait into modern-day Alaska. And here's where it gets even more interesting, because new genomic research shows movement in the opposite direction, too. These early migrants traveled back again to Asia. Joining me now to explain this fascinating new research and other top science stories of the week is Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American here in New York. Sophie, welcome back. Always good to see you on Science Friday. Thank you. It's good to see you for the first time in 2023. <laughs> and that's a happy new year to you. <laughs> uh, let's talk about this. What's the new information we're learning here? So researchers took the remains of 10 individuals from what is now Sib- we now call Siberia, that area of the world, and they did a genetic analysis. And these are the remains of humans who lived at various periods of time. Uh, the oldest ones are about 7,500 years old. And they just, yeah, they tested their genes. They said, like, who are your ancestors? And they found evidence that the population, that they had Native American genes. And this suggests that there were not not one, but multiple times when Native Americans either crossed over or people uh, from Siberia crossed to America and then came back. Wow. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of genetic mixing in there that suggests that these populations were not just traveling to a new place and staying there forever, that there was back and forth going on for thousands of years. Hmm. So, so how does this new research change then our understanding of, of early human migration patterns? Well, it shows that these early uh, nomadic uh, humans were traveling very large distances. You know, the they some of these remains they tested were not, they weren't just in the area around the Bering Strait. They really? were much further away in the far eastern part of modern-day Russia. And they also have, in these same populations, they've found genetic influence from other groups, right? They found that people from uh, Japan probably uh, had genetic mixing with people from mod- what, what is now Russia. So there was a lot of travel going on in the ancient world. We think of our as being at the most connected time in human history with planes and stuff. But our ancestors were no slouches either. I love it when new stuff like this comes up, right? Yes. It makes everything so much more interesting. All right, yeah. let's move on to some rather depressing news this week, as if we need any more of it. And this one's about the state of our glaciers, and, and not those in the Arctic or Antarctic, but the mountain glaciers, right? Half of them are expected to melt by 2100? And that's the best case scenario. Really? Yes. So if the world managed to to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, then we would still expect half of all the mountain glaciers in the world to be melting by 2100. But uh, the the problem is that that's if we limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Right now, we're on track for two degrees uh, based on the limitations that countries have made in the attempts to reduce emissions. And that would that would melt about 60% of the mountain glaciers. And each time that number goes up, each time that amount of global warming increases, we can expect to lose more and more glaciers. And so we're talking about major mountain chains. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's glaciers in in places like big mountain chains in um, South America. Uh, You might think of the Alps. Um, There's these glaciers are very valuable, not just as, you know, sources of tourism for people who want to, you know, check them out 
they are also uh, in some places they uh, they have a spiritual significance to indigenous populations, and they also provide a reservoir of water. Mm. So you know when it warms up, water from the glaciers might melt and flow down from the mountains and supply people who live in lower at right. lower elevations. So these are very very important parts of our world, and not the. The risk is not just that we'll lose them, but where are they going to go? They're going to go to the ocean and contribute to rising sea levels. Mm, loss of the snowpack, that is. That's a big deal. Big yeah. deal. Uh, let's move on to a team of researchers in China announcing earlier this week that they have figured out how to break one of the most common digital encryption methods, and they're using quantum computing? That's right. So researchers have known about an algorithm for breaking this type of encryption for a long time called Shor's algorithm. But the problem is you would need a quantum computer with about a million qubits, that's quantum bits, the building blocks of a quantum computer, in order to run this algorithm. Now, these Chinese researchers have said there's a different algorithm, confusingly named Schnorr's algorithm, as opposed to Shor's algorithm, uh, which can be... It, it, it's, it was written originally for a regular classical computer, but they said if you run it on a classic computer, you can break encryption using a computer with just a few hundred qubits mm-hmm. instead of a million or more. Mm-hmm. But they they so is that the big is that the big breakthrough here? They don't need a supercomputer; they can run it on a. Well, it sounds really like a big breakthrough <laughs> I'm, on the I'm surface, now. right? Don't but don't <laughs> don't worry. Once you once you start looking a little closer, you realize that I don't think we have anything to worry about yet. So first of all, if you wanted to run it with on this a quantum computer, you would need to have extremely low rates of error. It would have to be extremely accurate. And quantum computers just aren't that accurate. They've got to be kept in these very pristine, uh, specific conditions in order for all these qubits to remain uh, entangled and in the right state. And it's just essentially really, uh, at our current level of technology, it's nearly impossible to get the error levels down to the point where this would work. And then the other issue is it's unclear how long it would take this quantum computer to crack right. encryption you, running this yeah. algorithm. So it could crack it, but how long would it take? Would it take, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years? We, oh. We're not sure how much faster we're going to be able to to break it to the point where it would be like a practical solution. So until they've got um, a better sense of that, I would say don't worry. I mean, the big problem, right, that we're worried about is down the road. Like, let's say today a hacker steals some encrypted data right. and then they hold on to it for several years. And then maybe eventually the technology catches up and then quantum computers get good enough to run these algorithms that break encryption and they have this cache of data that they can now break into. Um, that I think that's the worry that a lot I of see. cryptographers have. But they're I also, see. at the same time, you know, people aren't just sitting around waiting for this to happen. They're working on new forms of encryption that hopefully even a quantum computer couldn't crack. Well, let's get a little deeper into the digital world. And I'm talking about artificial intelligence because this week Microsoft researchers announced a new tool called Val-E. You can recreate someone's voice just on three seconds of reco- recorded audio I'm fearful about my job now. <laughs> How does that work? So this is uh, this is work from Microsoft researchers, right. but they actually used a tool released by a different, developed by a different tech giant, Meta, the company uh, formerly known as Facebook. But Meta has a tool that uh, these Microsoft researchers took advantage of, which can basically break down your three-second clip of audio into all these little discrete components. And then re- the Microsoft researchers built a tool that you use these components to teach a, a model how to make a voice that's imitating the original 
clip. So mm-hmm. yeah, they say that using only a three-second audio clip, they can reproduce a voice. But something I'm grateful for is that they have not released this yet. You know, a lot of other AI tools, people are free to play around with. Yeah, you know, you can yeah. tr- play around with ChatGPT, you can play around with Dolly, but that's not the case for this. The Microsoft researchers have said, first of all, they're not going to release it right away. And second of all, when they do, they're going to include um, a sort of watermark in their uh, in, in any recordings or or audio that's built on this tool so that you can tell it's not original, which would help cut down on, you mm. know, using a deep fake to, to, to right. make, you know, to spread misinformation or to try to blackmail someone, for instance. Well, you could tell it's not original in mine if there are no dad jokes in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the dead giveaway. I mean, but this is not the first program, right? To, to use AI to, to recreate someone else's voice or even video. Right. The difference here is how fast it can do it, how little of a sample it needs and in order to recreate that, right? Like a lot of people who build deep fakes of, of someone's voice, you know, they might want to look at hundreds of hours of recorded audio as opposed to three seconds. Yeah. And the other thing is that it can, re- it can, it also reproduces the the emotional tone of the voice in the three second clip and also what's going on in the background. Wow. So if I'm talking cheerfully in this clip and I'm talking on a telephone, so it's got a certain sound quality to it, any imitations of that clip are going to sound like I'm talking on the telephone and, the, and I'm cheerful. Wow, wow, wow. I'm, I, this is so interesting. We're going to develop, a, devote a whole segment to this coming up in the near future, talking about AI and the explosion of all these tools. It's really uh, fascinating it, it technology. Really, really, really. Uh, let's go off to space. There's a new comet and it's green and you can see it in the night sky, right? It's it's coming That's around right. the first time in 50,000 years. I know. It, it orbits the sun at a very far distance, which is why we haven't seen it in, you know, a few 50,000 years, as you say. And um, it, it's going to be visible in the northern hemisphere uh, in the early evening and also possibly in the early morning. Um, if you want to look for this, you, you're going to probably need binoculars, although it might be bright enough to see uh, without with the naked eye towards the end of the month. But what you're going to want to do is look for the North Star, Polaris, and it should be around there, and it'll have this fuzzy green glow around mm, it. And, and t- Friday night, tonight it gets closest to the sun, right? That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm going to look for that. I remember seeing in Comet Hale-Bopp, I remember, and it was years ago, but it was, it's one of the most exciting things you can do if you're, you know, an amateur astronomer, is actually see a comet for yourself. But that's another story. <laughs> let's, let's end on a, on a tasty note. Utensils that can make your food sweeter or saltier without sugar or salt. That's right. So people have known for a while that a whole bunch of factors influence the taste of your food other than the contents of the food itself. You know, some people try to eat with cutlery made of gold or uh, different materials. They found out that cutlery with different different uh, textures can change the way something tastes. So uh, previously, researchers had developed um, these chopsticks with a very mild electric current running through them. And the idea is that that current uh, moves around sodium ions in food. And so when you eat food with these chopsticks, it tastes salty even if there's not salt in it. Oh, no kidding. Right. So if you're trying to cut down on your sodium, but you don't like bland food, you know, you could have a low salt meal, but eat it with these electric chopsticks. And that would sort of stimulate uh, your senses a little more. No one's no one's getting zapped with these chopsticks, though. Right, right. right. This would be a very mild current, and th- those are actually uh, g- supposed to come to market this year in 2023. So they might wow. be available for purchase soon. Um, and then there's a, a a spoon that's not quite as close to being available, but uh, some student researchers actually developed the idea, the design for a spoon they call sugarware that would have these bumps on the bottom of it, and the bumps would be coated with a material that interacts with the sweet sensors on your 
taste buds. There you go. Thank you, Sophie. It's always exciting stuff. Thanks for taking time to be with us today, Sophie. Thanks for having me. Sophie Bushwick, technology editor at Scientific American. She's based here in New York.